fall is in the air and it's time to go back to school. Announcing the Tent Autumn School on the Gospel of John. You may have noticed that there is a vast gap between Christianity and the way of Jesus. A gap that seems to be widening. Now, more than ever, we need to go back to the source. Now, more than ever, we need the book of the Beloved. You are invited to a chapter-by-chapter study of this extraordinary account of Jesus, taking in the political, cultural, and theological aspects of the entire Gospel of John. We'll meet for ten online sessions, led by me, Stephen Backhouse. We'll meet every Thursday from the 6th of October through to the 8th of December. To hit as many time zones as possible, the sessions will start at 8pm GMT. Each live session is one and a half hours, giving lots of time for teaching, discussion and friendship. Ask any question. Have your say. Meet fellow travellers. For prices and more info, visit the Courses and Resources page of the Tent Theology website or email me, stephen, at tenttheology.com to book your place for the Autumn School and the Gospel of John. Welcome, fellow traveller, to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social, and political imagination. Welcome, friends. This is Tent Talks. I'm Chris Marchand. Today in the tent, we have author David A. Ritchie discussing the subject of his book, Why Do the Nations Rage? The Demonic Origin of nationalism. David is a pastor, a writer, somebody working with his community at a local level in Amarillo, Texas. His context is somewhat similar and yet entirely different from my own, even within the United States. We go into the origins of nationalism, how it is in fact, in many ways, the world's original religion. It's something that lingers with us from people to people. Those of us in America are wrestling with it in our own particular ways. And we try to name that. We try to to go into what are the powers, what is the, the nature and the spirit of our own nation, our own people here, the idols that take us away from following after Jesus, even while many of us think we're following Jesus. What are the what are the idols that we don't see? the things that capture our hearts. And nationalism is tied to that. So we get into that. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. You can find more out about David A. Ritchie at davidaritchie.com and on Twitter. Just find him at David A. Ritchie. We hope you enjoy our conversation. mention your context a little bit amarillo now the thing is is i'm I'm from central illinois uh many of our listeners are from the uk so we kind of have people from all around i mean we do get people listening from around the world i mean there's there's a kind of a couple of questions here which is 
tell me about your context and what does that mean? Like what, what is Amarillo like? And, and this is going to lead into like, well, how does that fit with this book that you wrote about the, you know, I mean, which I, I'll say this, this is, I mean, I, I, I like to throw in my, my humor a little bit uh, just as a fair warning. We'll see what comes out today, but you know what? The, the the demonic origins of nationalism that's a kind of extreme title right you know it's like it's like hey listen everybody <laughs> if i haven't if i haven't hit you over the head with this yet it's like you, you better pay attention so to say something like that is like you know you're taking a step right now depending on your church cultures that might get you kicked out uh, uh, of the church depending on what you're dealing with there anyway that was my long-winded question is to say t- tell me a little bit about your context and how that dovetails into the writing of this book Absolutely. Yeah, this is a book that arises out of a, a desire for a pastoral theology, um, addressing an issue that is is very much alive and um, an experience in in my local context. Amarillo, Texas, is in West Texas. It's a it's very much a city that's in the middle of the wilderness. In fact, it was one of the last places in the United States that was settled with permanent settlements. Um, it's in the you know the Great Plains. Um, there's there's very little water. Um, there is a gorgeous, beautiful canyon named Paladero Canyon that's uh, just south of us, and it, it is this place that it has a very austere beauty about it. Um, beautiful sunsets, um, but just definitely a, a harshness. We have we have big storms. We have big colds. We have big heat. And um, the the type of mentality that composes the the people that arise from West Texas and Amarillo in particular, if you're familiar with the story Grapes of Wrath and and the the story of just the horrendous hardship of the Dust Bowl, the type of people that form the backbone of Amarillo, Texas are the people who stayed. And so there is a a fierceness of independence, um, uh, very much a a culture that values like we we want to raise ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And so that very much relates with um, a, a political conservatism, which is definitely something that I, I grew up with and has been a part uh, of my life, especially my, my family of origin, um, the, the churches that I grew up in and around early in, in my life. And for a long period of time, um, that, that political conservatism was indistinguishable from the Christian gospel in, in my world. Um, I, I very much uh, was something that I thought they were one and the same thing. And it was something that um, I grew up with not being able to see that those were two distinct realities. And, and so uh, the, the faith that I was exposed to as, as a young man and as a, especially as a child uh, was very much um, Jesus kind of as a veneer to this political ideology um, that was political conservatism. And so there was always the, the fear of the other, um, the fear that the, the liberals that run the world are going to come in and kind of mess everything up. And uh, the answer to that is uh, really kind of like a, a, a religiously infused political conservatism. And so when I grew up, I, I remember, you know, listening to Rush Limbaugh and watching Looney Tunes the next thing. I mean, it was a, it was a part of my, my formation as a young man. And, and later on, kind of when I was a teenager, I, I rejected what I understood to be Christianity um, because it really was something that began to turn me off. It was something that was highly associated with ugliness and meanness and hypocrisy. And it wasn't until some years later in my life that I, I really discovered that what I thought was Christianity was this deeply um, conservative political ideology um, that was kind of um, a, a part of my culture growing up in that 
Christianity was this thing that was ancient and, and not necessarily tethered to um, American politics. And so that was, it was very important for me to be able to, to understand that. And it does motivate a, a lot of what my book is about because I essentially argue that nationalism is something that is better understood as a religion as opposed to an ideology, that it is something that is intrinsically more spiritual than it is even politically motivated. That nationalism isn't really as much concerned about answering questions of fundamental, how do we govern ourselves or how do we create a just society? It is this idealized vision of the nation and what the nation should be. Sometimes that can be very ethnically defined. Sometimes it can be defined by a, a particular political persuasion. But whatever my vision of the nation is, that, that becomes the highest good that there possibly is. And it's something that demands of me not just an allegiance, but a, a devotion, a loyalty. And, and once you start using that type of language and that kind of characterization, you see that we have crossed the line into religion. We've crossed the line into worship. And there's a point that came about just in, in my journey as a person and then later on as a pastor where I began to realize that if I were to really characterize what is the number one thing that I see competing with the gospel of Jesus Christ among my community, among my church congregation, what is wooing their, their hearts and their affections, it would be nationalism. And, and even more than that, what I began to see is that nationalism has this very seductive and deceptive ability to utilize Christian categories of theology. Nationalism, not just in America, but historically and across the globe, will oftentimes convey its own sense of Christology. Um, it, it has uh, even its own theories of atonement of what saves the nation and, and whose blood has to be shed in order to save the nation. It oftentimes has a very distinct definition of who, who are the people, uh, who, who is the in-group and who is the out-group. And it almost comes with a uh, always comes with an eschatology of some sort of uh, what will it take to usher into the utopia of the the new kingdom that is to come, or what what is the apocalypse that will come upon us if the bad guys win? And so I wanted to really write a book that sought to examine nationalism not from a sociological or historical lens, even though I think those lenses are vital and important and helpful. To ask the question, can the Bible and can theological language equip us to understand nationalism in a, in a way that I think is important for the, the church and for Christians that are thoughtful to be able to understand it for what it is? Yeah, that, well, that is interesting that you mentioned that. Uh, you have, I mean, there's a, there's a few sections in the book, but one big section is on the creed, right? So kind of you're juxtaposing uh, an American nationalism with what does it mean to be to have allegiance with Christ? Or is that correct? Is that the best way to put it? Yeah, essentially what, what I want to convey in that section that is entitled uh, you know, Nationalism and Christianity or Christianity and Nationalism is that for every central doctrine of historic Christianity, that there is a nationalistic iteration of it, um, that Nationalism will, will seek to, in many ways, co-opt Christian language and categories and use that to be able to project its ideology or to project its story or its narrative. And the reason it's so important to be able to understand that is because by co-opting Christian language, by co-opting Christian categories of thought, nationalism becomes something more than a political ideology. It is something that then is asking of us religious devotion. It is, it is essentially 
inciting and provoking us to a level of allegiance and devotion that is indistinguishable from worship. So I, I and I like that. I, I, I you have all these really interesting sections where you take you know, different images or different symbols. I mean, I'm I'm personally I'm I'm really into the fascination with the flag, right? As a as a symbol uh, embodying a national character. Um, I'm actually in the process of, I've been writing a short story about that for quite some time and I'm trying to wrap my head around it. You know, it's funny as I, as I keep reading other things. So I was really glad when you had this, it was like a little, like a page or a half page. I was like, oh, okay, I need to come back to that. I'm going to circle back to your little, of how, of how the flag becomes personified. It, it takes on, you know, it, it, it becomes a character, a national character. Any, oh, any thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, a, a few different things I can at least say on that is just how, unique it is that for a culture that is supposedly materialistic and doesn't believe in the transcendent, that there are all these rules and regulations and things that we have to do in relation to the flag. If we're going to, you know, take the flag down or fold the flag up or um, dispose of a flag, um, you don't just, you know, burn it. You don't just throw it in the trash. It has to be folded in a special way and buried in a special way. And there's there's all of this ceremony that is basically presupposing a, a sacred aspect of this. It, it's almost similar to um, the, the administration of the sacrament of the Eucharist in, in some type of a ways. There's, there's a lot of religious ceremony that surrounds the liturgy of how we interact with the flag that I think is really odd. And it's helpful to just honestly admit this is something that's intrinsically religious, how we're interacting with this. I think the more that I've researched this and, and done writing and exploration on this, I can't get away from the idea of how odd it is that we actually pledge allegiance to a flag. We're saying, I am giving my life, my devotion, my loyalty to a flag and what I believe that this flag represents. I mean, that that's an inherently liturgical act that I think is is something almost like the, the Pledge of the Allegiance is almost like the, the Christian declaration of the Apostles' Creed in a time of worship or the Nicene Creed in a time of worship. Um, and, and two, just that how the flag is oftentimes talked about as political leaders, something that I, I mentioned in the book that I found as just unbelievably odd. And, and it, it baffled me how little Christians caught on to this as a, a, a significant thing. But Mike Pence, during the 2020 Republican National Convention, actually says, you know, uh, let us, you know, look towards, let's lay aside all of our hindrances and and look to old glory, the author and perfecter of our faith, you know, and how odd that is to not just change scripture for a political purpose, but to actually take Jesus out of that scripture and put the flag into Jesus's place. What what an odd thing that that is, and, and I think that like we would never allow that with John three sixteen, right? Um, you know, for God so loved the world that He gave old glory. That's what He said. You know, is the like let let us look to old glory. This idea of the flag, you know, we would never say, you know, God so loved the world that He gave old glory. You know, <laughs> and nevertheless, that we 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 accord to old glory or the the flag this thing of Christological import. One of the ways that I put it is 
so for instance, my kids, um, I, I used to be the headmaster for, for, for uh, podcast listeners. They'll know this story. I've, I've told it a few times. I used to be the headmaster of a, a classical Christian school in my town here. And uh, we're still connected to that community and love that community. Uh, but there was a time when we didn't do the pledge. And for me, it wasn't an issue. It wasn't an issue to even like, I did, there was no reason for me to consider doing the pledge. We're an independent Christian school. Uh, we begin every day in prayer. You know, we recite a scripture. Uh, you know, it's like, there's no reason for the pledge to be part of this, but uh, a parent brought it to the school board. The school board voted on saying the pledge. I refused to say it. And so then the school board asked a student to lead it daily. Now, that happened. I, I still disagree with it. I'm I'm actually pondering uh, writing up a proposal of why we shouldn't do it. I just kind of want to, you know, stir the waters and make some problems. But what I think is funny, what I think is really interesting, bitterly ironic, is in my school, there would be basically all Protestant parents that if I said, here is a crucifix or here's a cross, come up and kiss it out of devotion for Christ they would be repulsed by that liturgical act because it's some kind of weird idolatry. It's too Catholic to up whatever it is. It's that's, that is not what our faith is. And yet to say, I want your children to put their hands on their heart and pledge allegiance to that object over there called the flag. And they're like, well, why wouldn't you do that? Do you yes. not love your country? And I, and I, the, 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 the divide, the, the spiritual cognitive divide, it blows my mind. I don't quite know what to do with it. What, what do I do with it? Well, it's, it's so crucial to understand that this idolatry is so close to us that it's like the nose on the end of our face. We can't see it. And okay. I think any, any idol that actually grabs a hold of your heart, I mean, and this is in Psalm 115, right? Like, I mean, you know, when we, we worship idols that are, you know, have eyes, but do not see and ears, but do not hear mouths, but do not speak. We, we become like them. In other words, idols do have this capacity to blind us to their very existence. And it becomes so interwoven with how we intuit life and how we view reality and even how we view our faith, you know. And and the thing that's really just struck me on this is like I think it's a it can be a good and godly thing to have a rightly ordered love for one's nation. And the distinction that I make really early in the book is that in nationalism scholarship, all over the place, there are authors that are making a distinction between patriotism and nationalism. Patriotism that can be a, a, a good love for one's nation. It, you could even understand patriotism as an extension of one's love of neighbor. Uh, basically saying it's a love for neighbor that is in this, this defined area that we call our nation. That is a good and rightly ordered thing. Nationalism is whenever your vision of the nation becomes ultimate and ultimately a distorted love, a, a love that commands all other loyalties, an allegiance that commands all other allegiances, that even even in some sense your 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 Christianity has to be subordinated to it. That's that's when I feel like, okay, nationalism has now crossed into an object of worship. And as a pastor, um, that is something that I, I want to be zealously concerned about. And, and so it, it's not nationalism as something that I I'm concerned about because um, I think conservatism is wrong and liberalism is right. I, I don't believe that at all. I believe that any political ideology can become ultimately idolatrous. Any political ideology can kind of have its own redemptive narrative and become a functional gospel. The, the thing that I care about is when Christians are imputing theological categories to their nation and who they view as messianic figures and a hope that 
ultimately is 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 not a hope of the kingdom of God, but of a kingdom of man that now is taking on a level of spiritual import. I'll tell you one thing that I've seen that I have found to be a pretty convicting statement in people that I have conversations with, which is, you know, one thing I'm just noticing is that you're very eager to share with your neighbors your political ideals. You're very eager and willing, and it's very natural for you to give the most persuasive points that you feel like um, uh, you can make for your political ideology. You want to uh, proselytize and welcome people into that, but it seems like you're not excited at all to actually share the gospel with people, um, to share the goodness of Jesus, the beauty of Christ um, with your neighbors. And w- whenever our hearts naturally pour forth the urgency and why we believe that our political ideology, ideology is the best or our, our politics need to be followed and subscribed to, and and we're either unwilling or unable to do the same with the gospel, we see what has functionally become the good news of our heart. It's what we're in love with and that we're inviting our neighbors to. And I've just noticed um, that there's an accelerated um, urgency in American culture to really invite people into towards a vision of the kingdom of man. It being used with Christian language and a lot of times cloaked in Christian language, it has the veneer of Jesus's name, but ultimately it's just one version of the kingdom of man. I'm glad you brought up the the convergence or the the divide, however we want to look at it, between patriotism and nationalism, because that's something that we wrestle with on this podcast. Uh, and we've had these conversations, and I'm, actually, maybe I can read I can read a passage from the book. Um, it's yes, this is on page uh, 122 for those following along at home. Um, it's the end of uh, uh, end of part four. Okay, you say this. Make no mistake. The term Christian nationalism, nationalist, is just as oxymoronic as Yahwist Baal worshiper. When Christianity mixes with nationalism, the sum of this syncretism yields only nationalism. Light has no fellowship with darkness. Christ has no accord with Belial or Belial, and the temple of God has no agreement with idols. For this reason, Christians must have no part in nationalism. Okay, so here's what I'm wondering about like patriotism and nationalism as Americans. Like, isn't it isn't it too enmeshed? Like, like even you using the word patriotism, it's like saying, I don't know how to put it. It's like it, it's already tainted. <laughs> it's, yes, I, and and I agree with that. In, in some sense, just just to be able to make a little bit of an apologetic of why I use that particular distinction, yeah, is because it. It, it's so common in scholarship related to nationalism. The earliest I could find it. Um, that that kind of the distinction between patriotism and nationalism being utilized was actually George Orwell. He he wrote an essay called Notes on Nationalism, and that was the the first place I could find where he put those two ideas together. And scholars since then have kind of caught that and picked up on that and been able to basically say, okay, there is a right way to have a positive relationship with one's nation, but that can easily be distorted into something that is very toxic, very destructive, and very poisonous um, to society. And so I think that the, the only reason that the distinction is important is because we're, we're not saying that the answer is to hate your nation or to hate the concepts of nations together. We're, we're just basically saying that this particular love is really prone to, to transition into an idol. And it's one of the oldest idols that we have, by the way. Like, I mean, another part of the book kind of talks about national patron deities um, in the ancient Near East as being basically kind of like the embodiment of the national spirit. And basically, I argue that there's not that much of a distinction between 
an ancient Near East resident worshiping their national patron deity. You know, with, if they're living in Moab, they, they're worshiping Chemosh, right? And a, a modern day nationalist basically having a, a religious level of fervor towards his or her political vision. And so um, that, that's the, the, the reason why I'm able to do that. But I also get what you're saying, that patriotism is kind of a word that is becoming increasingly more solid. And the reason for that is because most nationalists would not call themselves nationalists. They would call themselves patriots. They, they think that their love for the nation is completely okay. good. Um, yeah. And then the idea of Christian patriot is something that is a self-designation for people that oftentimes are, are doing the things that we would typically associate or what I would typically associate with Christian nationalism. And, and so it is a, this enmeshment. And another point that um, you brought up in the quote there is I do think it's really helpful to um, add the category of religious syncretism into the conversation because basically syncretism is like saying, here's one religion over here. Here's another religion. They're not supposed to go together, but we're going to mix them up. And it's going to kind of become this interesting blend. And so, you know, kind of like the go-to source of this is, you know, Christianity and Gnosticism and how powerful of an alternative to Christianity that was in the early centuries. Another even more ancient one was the, the worship of Yahweh and the worship of Baal. What you have happening in the northern kingdom um, in the Old Testament era is this religious syncretism. Um, between worship of Baal, this Phoenician religion, and the worship of Yahweh. You even have like the, the whole idea, one of the most haunting aspects of the Old Testament to me is when Aaron builds the golden calf and he calls it by the name Yahweh. I mean, he wasn't saying that this is a different God, that we're rejecting Yahweh and we're worshiping another God. He basically takes this pagan idea and he slaps the name Yahweh onto it. And so what I see happening right now is that there is a gospel that is being proclaimed as Christianity, and we're slapping the name of Jesus on it, but it is something that is fundamentally different than the, the gospel that has been uh, proclaimed in the words of Scripture and that has been passed down to us by the apostles, and that has been proclaimed by the church through centuries from continent to continent and from culture to culture. And, and so that category of religious syncretism is absolutely essential um, because we, we need to understand that non-Christian religions are a lot of times very eager to actually adopt Christian categories and doctrines to kind of further its purpose, or non-Christian ideologies um, are are very willing to commandeer categories of the gospel and the reason they're willing to do that is because it means the level of devotion that it's able to evoke is is something that reaches into the religious affections. And and it, it makes us devoted. It makes us fanatical. It makes us willing to give everything and to sacrifice everything for said ideology. Okay, so I, I'm glad that you brought up like national identity and in terms of like a, a spiritual – identity to our our nations and you even you even bring up ancient israel the the ancient the, the lands surrounding it so i think what's fascinating about this is on our podcast we've often talked about the powers and you know walter wink the powers that be uh we bring it up in different terms now you bring it up in a very spiritual way in the sense of like actual spiritual realities and which i am open to I think maybe what I would ask you is, is how do you introduce to your congregation, to, to, you know, you know, regular everyday followers of Christ, 
what the powers that be are. By the way, I mentioned earlier, you go into the creed in your book, but you also go into numerous scriptures, how Paul introduces it, uh, Deuteronomy. I mean, I, I I'm not really familiar with you. You use it a lot. Uh, you're like a Deuteronomy 32 paradigm or framework, uh, which talks about the different, the sons of God. Is that or a different? That's correct. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, again, I'm, I, I tend to ask five questions at once, but how do you introduce this concept to people and then relate it to, to our subject of, of nationalism? How the book is structured is it's essentially really committed to this, this notion of let's understand Paul's doctrine of principalities and powers, and let's let that be the theological lens through which we examine the category or this phenomenon that we call nationalism. And, and when we say those words, principalities and powers, there's a theology that's attached to that, but there's also the question of where does this theology come from? When when Paul says these words, what exactly is he meaning and what connection is he inviting um, between the, the, the thought world and the thought forms of the Old Testament and Second Temple Judaism? And so, you know, these are, these are not just terms that Paul, the apostle, is inventing, but they are terms that he is using. First off, uh, one thing I want to say of as to why I chose that is is because a lot of the people that I see the most susceptible to Christian nationalism are those that are coming from a more Pentecostal background and tradition. Um, I, I spent a, a good portion of, of my early Christian life in more of a Pentecostal oriented church um, that was very much um, uh, leaning into what I would now consider um, Christian nationalist ideology and and teaching. And and so part of that was I felt like by appealing to the spiritual dimension of of this phenomenon that I would actually build a bridge to some of the people that I'm most eager to reach. A a lot of the people that I feel like are most prone to this are, are coming from that background. And so I wanted to actually enter into that framework. Secondly, the, the other reason I, I, saw, I thought that this was really particularly important was for, for two biblical reasons. Number one is when, when you're looking at the powers and principalities and at what they're doing in a book like Ephesians, what they're doing in a book like Colossians, is they tend to create animosity based on ethnic identity, based on national identity. Um, what the principalities and powers are doing in a book like Ephesians is, is they're trying to get the Jew and the Gentile to be primarily allegiant to their cultural identity, towards their ethnic identity. And and I felt like that was something that was really an interesting connective point towards something like ethnic nationalism and the animosity that ethnic nationalism can uh, create between different people groups. Secondly, as you look into the history of the powers and, and what they are and uh, what Paul is using when he's using those terms, there is, uh, I, I think, a rather compelling case to be able to to form a connection between the powers and these ancient pagan deities that have been considered, you know, the gods of the nations. Um, in fact, there's a, a really brilliant book by uh, Daniel I. Block called The Gods of the Nations, uh, where he kind of unfolds this idea uh, about how to be able to be a, a, a good Moabite, you are not just committed to the land of Moab, but you are committed to the god Chemosh. There's this intimate connection with one's understanding of nationality and the, the particular worship of a patron deity that was associated with that nationality. You can see that in motivating something like the, the massive expansion of the Assyrian Empire um, was not just motivated out of a desire for simple earthly power, but it was expanding the domain of the god Ashur. 
Um, and one of the more fascinating things that I saw in, in uh, looking into some particular Assyrian theology was that in the Temple of Ashur, um, whenever um, the Assyrian Empire would conquer a given people group, they would go to that nation's temple and their patron deity. They would steal the idol. They wouldn't destroy it, but they would actually place it inside the temple of Ashur, bowed down before Ashur. And so you get this really interesting image of all the gods of the nations bowing before the god of Assyria. That connects to me on, on a lot of different levels because I, I see that as um, – something that can give us a, a little bit of, of, of sympathy for our ancient world because we're not doing that much of a different thing. Whenever we, we see um, the, these pretty like radical visions of what the nation should be and how that can lead to massive conflicts that we've seen on a global scale. Like, I mean, nationalism and competing nationalisms were a big issue in World War I, one of the big causes of World War I. You, you could view it, the, the, the animosity between Pakistan and India as two competing religious nationalisms. Um, it, it is something that absolutely is a factor that saturates a lot of the global conflict that we see. It's something that's happening right now in uh, Ukraine and the conflict that it's having with Russia. Uh, a lot of that is uh, has to do with nationalism and is specifically religiously, spiritually charged of nationalism. And so I, I feel like the discussion of the powers comes into play because we're looking at can we understand these conflicts and can we understand this phenomenon as more than just mere matter in motion? But can we consider the spiritual element behind this? And, and I feel like that spiritual element is something that is often neglected and that for at least people of faith, that's something that we, we should believe in. We, by confessing our creeds, we say we believe in these realities. Um, we say that God's the creator of all things seen and unseen. And is this a would this open us up to another opportunity to see that what we often construe as a political or historical or sociological reality and provide an extra layer, an extra dimension of explanation to it. Uh, I'm, I'm reading through uh, Prince Caspian right now with my kids. And I also grew up uh, with this present darkness and all of the, 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 all the, you know, spiritual stuff, demonic stuff. Prince Caspian, for those who don't know, is it's partially about an age who has lost its sense of the transcendent coming face to face with the fact that there's a greater reality in the world. So in Narnia, this is, you know, this is a uh, Chronicles of Narnia. They don't believe in the dryads and the, and the satyrs and, and the, you know, the, all the supernatural has been evaporated from Narnia. It's like all things in the past. And we don't talk about that anymore. I feel like that's kind of, and in some ways where we're at uh, it, now, again, you, you mentioned, Pentecostal people, uh, that's, that's where I grew up too. And so we're, we're, we're more open to that, but in some ways our world, we're, you know, we're a, we're a, we, at least we think of ourselves as scientifically minded people. So where I'm going with this is really, I just want to ask, what are our gods as American then? You know, like what, who are we bowing to? I know the country itself, but do you have any more insight into that? Like who, 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 who are we giving our allegiance to other than just the nation itself? Like what are the things that we can't lay down? What are the idols that we don't even see that are there? Yeah. I mean, to, to, to take a step back further, one thing I would want to just add to the conversation is part of the reason that you're describing, you know, we're living in the secular age within the imminent frame. We have this hard time of even conceiving of the transcendent. Mm. That That is one reason that I rely on scholarship that has come particularly from African scholars, because they seem to not only see 
the spiritual dimensions to, to reality and experience and intuit the, the spiritual dimensions of reality and experience, they, they, they have an ability to describe it in a way that I feel like a lot of times um, speak directly to the blind spots of those of us that grew up in the, the West, so to speak. And, and so um, scholars like Esther um, Akalache and Daniel K. Darko, um, both who, who were born in the nation of Ghana, have done tremendous scholarship on the powers from a biblical standpoint that I think are really helpful. And I think um, it actually helps us correct some of those things that we're blind to um, because we do live in the, the Narnia that um, is, is oftentimes closed off and we have a really hard time even understanding and imagining these things. And, and so one of the things to answer your question is where you see us already intuiting some of these things is just when we talk about idols, you know, an idol is any, good thing that we elevate to a position of ultimate thing that we then worship. That the level that I'm trying to be able to bring into this is that there is a, a spiritual agency that oftentimes empowers and works alongside our idolatry. And it's really interesting when you look at the biblical literature that talks about idols, because on one hand, idols are unreal, right? They're just created things that, um, you know, have eyes, but do not see and ears, but do not hear. But on another level, Paul says that when we are, you know, engaging in the worship of idols, that we're having fellowship with demons. And, and I think that it's, it's a really interesting observation to be able to say that, that there is a level of spiritual agency that I think can co-opt um, our worship of idols. And so, I mean, I, I think it's everything like, I mean, the big three are obviously, you know, money, sex, and power. <laughs> um, all of those things I think are things that require a spiritual level of devotion to us and that can have, that can hold us into a level of spiritual captivity. And so nationalism tends to be about power. I mean, the God of mammon is absolutely powerful in our, in our, our lived experience as well. Sex can be something that absolutely drives people into addiction and bondage and um, self-destructive behavior as well. It's something that our culture can be um, very much beholden to. It, it's, it's anything that we look to and, and I'll tell you this as a preacher, you know when you've hit an idol, <laughs> um, whenever there's a, a visceral defensiveness and rage that comes from being able to hit that particular thing. And so when I've preached against nationalism, and I have, when I, whenever I suggest that political extremism can be something that is a pressure that presses in on the church and presses in on the gospel um, to get it to distort itself, people really react to that. They have a hard time with that because the assumption is always, well, you're on the other team. You know, you're you're just trying to get us to go to the other side. And, and that's not what I'm saying. But that, that is oftentimes the, the reaction. And so, like, I mean, um, we, we see that in anything that I think evokes that level of rage whenever it's challenged as being something that is worthy of ultimate devotion. Thank you for touching on all those things. OK, I'm going to here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to loop this into the current uh, gun control debate and what we do about this in America now. This is really complicated and it's baffling and it's, it's hurtful. And it's, I, I, I don't even know you're, you know, you're from Texas, but Texas is a big place. And so I don't even know what you can speak to, <laughs> you know, and you're, you, maybe, maybe you feel isolated from it, but um, when it comes to abortion in America, let's say we often as Christians can say, you know what, we have a sex problem, right? Yeah. We, we, we can look at that and go, there's, there's problems all across the board, whether we're talking about, within families, as a culture, like just sex is an issue. And part of abortion, part of it is acknowledging, like even I would say, uh, I think maybe some Christians 
have trouble admitting this, but it's like, how do we treat women? And, and how we treat women is part of our sex problem. Uh, women are, some, are, are an, an item for men to have sex with, and then they can be discarded. And thus, abortion comes along through that. That's, that's a whole uh, podcast unto itself, maybe what I just said right there. But along with the gun problem is, I, how do you deal with the fact that we can't get many Christians to admit we have a violence problem? And so what happens is, is we say, we say, hey, hey, what do we do about gun control? And then the answer that comes back is, what do you mean what we can do? I'm, I'm a good citizen. I'm a responsible, peaceful citizen. There's nothing to do. It's the problem that's out there. And I go, well, I think America has a violence problem. And it's a long term. It's not just the present. See, we, all, we, we get so caught up in the moment of like, I know there's some things that have happened, but most people are good. no. No, we, we, I look back on our history of violence and it's, it's just all pervasive. We are, we are a nation that took the nation from other people. We brought people here in, 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 in forces of violence and, and held them there under violence. Um, and we're all afraid of each other. We're, we're just afraid. So the, the thing is, is the good citizen, the good citizen says, I have my gun because I just need to do what I need to do to protect my family. There's something noble about it. I understand that. I've heard it many times. What I would like to challenge is you're living out of fear and, and your whole existence, the fishbowl you're living in is fear. How do you, you're in Texas. How do you deal with that? How do you even begin to talk about this without getting uh, sent out of the town like Paul and Silas? <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and I'll begin with saying to your previous question that was even before that one, another good litmus test is anything that demands the sacrifice and blood and lives of children, there's a pretty good chance that that's a demonically inspired idol. And I'll just leave it there. And there are multiple things in American life that are asking for that. With that said, um, relation to to gun control. So I I do live in Texas. Um, I I do live in what would be considered the West. Um, Places like Amarillo or nearby or places where People like Billy the Kid used to inhabit, um, Quanah Parker, and before that, the Conquistadors. And so th- this is a, an area that very much was settled by violence. In fact, actually, uh, one of my uh, ancestors, my great-great-grandfather, was one of the first ever county sheriffs of the county where I live right now. And he, he wrote memoirs, and he talks about coming to this area and how there was a, a, a dugout trench around the essentially the courthouse because there was uh, rumors of Indian attacks. Um, and so it's, and that's not that long ago. Like when we're talking about the 1880s, 1890s, um, you know, post-Civil War. And so we're not that far removed from this, but I do think that especially in the American West, the gun represents um, where there is no law. This is what gives me autonomy. This is what makes me safe. This is what gives me security. This is what makes me okay. And, and so to do anything that would limit access to that or to give that up and to sacrifice that is something that is perceived as an immense amount of threat. And, and the idea is, and, and I mean, these are people that I know and love and talk with a lot, all the time, but is the reason we have to be able to have these guns and the reason we have to even have powerful guns is because what, what if the government wants to take us over and, and to force us into things that would either be oppressive to us or to defy our convictions? That's, that's what they would say. It is very much a fear-based reality, and it is something that the, – the reason why guns are, are viewed with almost this fanatical level of, of devotion to where we can't even consider any level of legislation that might 
skip reform, you know, um, it is because it is something that has always illustrated or represented a level of personal autonomy, freedom, and safety. This is what makes me feel safe and secure. But again, when we, we kind of pull out from the vantage point of West Texas and America in general, this is something when the, the world looks at us, it just looks absolutely absurd. We do not have legislation of universal background checks, that we do not have legislation of you know, red flag laws that could be able to you know, say, hey, this person is making actual violent threats online right now. They have guns. They're showcasing their guns. They're advertising that they have guns. Can we take those guns away right now until we can figure out what's, what's happening and what is motivating these violent threats? None of that exists right now. And so even cropping off whether or not um, people should be armed with AR-15s, it is really hard to argue with some of the, what would be called you know, common sense gun legislation. But that, that shows that there is something of almost like a spiritual stronghold over that particular thing and what that represents. And that's where I think that something like the language and the theology that is related to the powers is so helpful. It's such a category that the church needs to embrace and teach on and be aware of is because it does give us this explicitly biblical way of accounting for not just personal and individual evil, but corporate evil and, and systematic and structural evil. And that is something that I know that right now when you begin to use those terms, you know, systemic evil or systemic um, uh, uh, sin of some sort, people are really allergic to that terminology because they think that derives from CRT or something that is intrinsically leftist. But, you know, it's, it's the Bible that actually has terms like, you know, the devil, sin, the flesh, the world. And when you use something like the world, you're talking about sin that has been structured and systematized and enculturated in such a way that it perpetuates the reality and the dominion of sin. And and I think that we need to say, hey, we don't have to to utilize words that are coming from um, a philosophy that you're concerned about. Let's let's just talk about the Bible. What is the world? And what does that mean when that term is being used in, in conjunction with sin? And because I, I think that if you're going to talk to a, a very conservative Christian they would not argue that we have a culture of lust or a culture that very much systematizes and celebrates that, that particular sin, that, that particular inordinate desire. It's all through our marketing. It's all through our culture of consumption. It's, it's, it's all through the way that we, in, in entertainment and, and in, in many other ways, uh, objectify human people and reduce, reduce fe fellow image bearers to sexual objects to be consumed. Who would argue with that right now? How could that not also be something that would also enculturate and structurally interweave with society a culture that uh, lends itself towards violence or that lends itself towards racism or that lends itself to any other form of injustice? And so the powers help us see that corporate reality. So I'm tracking with you. And one of the pushbacks that I hear is, oh, well, hey, we're not going to make a law against lust though. Right, buddy. And, and so what happens is, is what I've observed is that no one, and maybe this is another American, I could name another God, uh, the God that thou shalt not ever tell me what to do, the, you know? And so when, when a Christian that is pro second amendment hears about lust, they're like, yeah, they need to give up that lust. At least some of them will, but they will not say that about, Hey, I have, I have these killing machines in my house 
and and they view the killing machines as neutral as amoral they're just like this they're just a they're just a tool as opposed to the fact that well i'm i'm a person i have human agency my lust could become a problem but there's no conception that uh, the, the killing machines in their houses could become a problem. Um, wh- where am I going with this? I, I am at the moment just back and forth between the legalities of it, which you get no space on. Like there, there's like, there's no ability to see, yeah, we should do this. We should do this versus will like all of our own wills. Like Jesus com- calls us to, to lay down our lives, to, to cut off our hands if we need to. I don't know. Any, any thoughts on that in the sense of what, what, what do we do about this divide between, yeah, we can enact laws or maybe we can just all give up our weapons by choice. What do we do that? Is that like, how do you even begin to, to test those waters? Well, I have two initial thoughts. One addresses the legal aspect of it, the other the spiritual aspect of it. Number one is that we we do actually have several laws that I think do try to push back against an inordinate culture of lust and se- and okay. sex gone wrong, right? And so, like, um, there's a limit on uh, when you can go into, you know, and uh, I doubt people would do this anymore just because the internet exists, but you can't go and buy a pornographic film or you can't go and prov- uh, buy a, a playboy if you're of a certain age and it's actually hauntingly possible to go and buy a shotgun at a very young age um in in, in the state of texas and uh, there's zero regulation on that we put a limit on 21 as an age of when you can be able to drink alcohol and that is something that that we do and so i would say it is something that we just need to acknowledge universally that there is a particular lack of laws that structure uh, the purchasing of firearms and who can be able to do that. Um, unlike anything else, you know, well, well really quickly, I'll let you answer the, the other way as a young man. It's like, Hey there, young man, you're growing up. You might have some issues with lusting and wanting, uh, you know, to have sex with people that you need to deal with. Why aren't we having conversations? Hey there, young man. And isn't it kind of, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I'm phrasing this all about men, uh, but it's like, Hey there, young man, you might have propensity to violence. We should talk about this and deal with this. Uh, we don't have those conversations. Instead, it's like, here you go, buddy. Here it is. It's loaded. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it's almost like a celebrated aspect of an emblem, maybe even of, of, of yeah. masculinity and strength and things yes, like that. And yes. so but I definitely think that is a, an issue of a pastoral concern that um, that people that are especially in pastoral roles and entrusted with that position need to be as just as sensitive to issues of violence and almost like the the fantasies of violence as we would be lust and um and basically pouring gasoline on that through really dangerous actions and behaviors and so but but to answer that other layer of your question related to spirituality i think this is really fascinating and so like if we I were to kind of like come up with what would be the patron deity of the united states of america it would be the goddess columbia columbia is the goddess of freedom her image is the very graven image, literally a graven image that is on top of our United States Capitol building. It's also in New York Harbor and uh, the Statue of Liberty. And th- there's a lot of iconography in federal buildings and in just United States um, kind of like national imagery that is associated with the goddess Columbia. And I, I think that if you're going to uh, boil down one particular attribute that we worship above all other things. It is personal autonomy and personal liberty, even at the expense of the flourishing and the goodness and the life of our fellow neighbors. 
And so whether you're on the left or you're on the right, there are certain aspects of individual autonomy and freedom that we view as absolutely inviolable. And a lot of times that what that does contribute to is an unhealthy, radical individualism that makes civil society really, really difficult to be able to um, to be able to function together. And, and a good example of this is um, the whole idea of, of my body, my choice. Right. Um, that is something that is said on the left, on the right. And it's and people will be willing to point fingers to each other on on whether or not the other is wrong on that particular issue but the the, the issue that people fail to, to realize is that it is not my body my choice whenever i'm also talking about the, the life and the agency and the flourishing of another human person right and, and that all comes back down to that worship of absolute autonomy absolute freedom and i think that um at its root the the gun and even the capacity to be able to enact will through violence comes back to that fundamental worship of, of autonomy and self. The gun is the means through which that happens. It represents that. Down to the mythic image of the, the cowboy with the six-shooter settling you know, the, the great American West, it's a symbol of that freedom. Can you tell me more, where does Columbia come from, right? So, so what, what I'm fascinated with is these things that are part of culture, and then you grow up, and then you just learn about George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. But it's like these symbols that are with us, like, I don't know what you're talking about, but it's there. It's called the District of Columbia, right? Uh, yes. Can you say more about the origins of this? Yeah. So if you go into Roman and Greek mythology and you're looking for Columbia, you're going to be very disappointed because she's not there. <laughs> we made her up and then put her in the pantheon of other um, gods and goddesses that come from the classical world. A, a good example of this is in the the Capitol building, underneath the Duomo, there is this fresco that, that was painted by an Italian uh, painter. And it was right after the Civil War. And the title of that painting is The Apotheosis of Washington, which, you know, apotheosis, apotheosis is is literally taking someone that's a human and elevating them to the position of divinity. It's something that the Romans actually um, invented as a part of their uh, public policy. Um, actually, you know, the first person that was apotheos uh, that experienced apotheosis in uh, the Roman Empire was Julius Caesar. Um, uh, Augustus, you know, his heir, convinces the Roman Senate to be able to to make Julius Caesar a god, um, to elevate him to the position of divinity, um, and they they do that by Senate motion, which was really great, considering that the last thing that the Senate did in relation to Julius Caesar was stab him to death. Caesar's elevated to the position of God. Consequently, um, that makes Augustus conveniently the son of a God because he's the, he's the adopted son of Julius Caesar. So you can kind of see the Christological language there. And then Augustus is um, uh, elevated to God after he dies. And this invents what's called the imperial cult, right? So we're worshiping Caesar as divine. It's actually the thing that caused Christians to be martyred. You know, it wasn't that they were worshiping Jesus. Um, Caesar was just fine with you worshiping Jesus and Caesar, but it was when you absolutized Christ's lordship that that really became an issue and a problem. And so uh, basically this, this whole religion of apotheosis is something that America then incorporates it into its actual Capitol building. And it's Washington on the throne of heaven. He's, he's sitting on a rainbow um, encircled with clouds. It's Revelation chapter four imagery. And on his right hand and on his left hand are two goddesses. One is Victoria, the goddess of victory. Um, in her Greek form is Nike. On her other side is Columbia. 
this, this goddess of freedom. And then surrounded in um, kind of like the base of that Duomo is, you know, Poseidon and Athena and all the other gods and goddesses of the pagan world. But uh, there is no um, Jupiter. There is no Zeus because Washington is now occupying that particular role. And, and all I'm saying as a Christian pastor is that's really odd. It's odd that we made that choice <laughs> of saying that inside of our the center of our government, which is what the United States Capitol is supposed to be, that we infuse it with that level of religious imagery. The, the thing that I, I simply like to bring out in relation to Columbia is that she's always there, You know that that was the thing that we wanted to make sure that new immigrants that were coming into the United States of America through New York Harbor, that that was the first thing they saw was the image of Columbia. That when you look at the United States Capitol, the thing that's higher and above everything else, the highest place of our, our national uh, seat of government is the goddess Columbia. That, that I believe, communicates something in, intuitively that we understand as religious and that even at an unconscious level is appealing to our religious affections. Are, are you familiar with the statue of Washington uh, by... Uh, it's called enthroned Washington, and he's uh, he he is posed as as I believe Zeus. Are you, are you familiar with that statue as well? Yes, I believe he's, I've seen. It. I think it's in the uh, the Smithsonian American uh, Museum of American yeah. History. Yeah, and it's I mean it's yeah. it's basically it's similar similar embodies similar ideals. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's it's basically using intentionally pagan imagery that is associated with depicting gods and goddesses, and yeah. and we're we're putting Washington into that role. And again, it, we, we have to just understand and ask the question if we were to, if it were not just so close to us that we just, we, we automatically recognize it as part of our lives. If we were just, you know, cultural anthropologists studying our culture, we would view that as a very odd thing, especially um, when you're seeing the majority of people that are doing that and okay with that are people that are professing to believe in Jesus Christ as the only God and that, you know, the first of our Ten Commandments is that there is only one God and that we're not to worship any God before him. Um, it is odd that we use that type of imagery in iconographic. Okay, so I also want to note at the end of his presidency, Washington, for, by many people, was hated. And uh, he was criticized by so many people. So what, what I find fascinating about our politics, it, this actually goes back to Caesar, is we either want to enthrone them as deity or have their head on a platter. And I kind of, I see that. Again, um, Donald Trump is president. He's either enthroned as deity or we want his head on a platter. President Biden, because we're all, we're all stuck in our own moment, right? Uh, it's, it's President Biden. Either I'm, now, here's the thing: is I don't see the I don't see the left enthroning Biden very much. They're kind of like, well, we'll put up with that, I guess. But we do. I see on the right, they want his head on a platter. Yeah, I don't see that level of like on the left, just a radical devotion to Joe Biden. But there there was a lot of messianic characterization that surrounded um, Barack Obama. Um, Absolutely. And Absolutely. I mean, e even in his autobiography, I, I read that um, last summer. And I was I was just so amazed at some of the language that he would slip into. I mean, politicians lean into this quite a bit. Um, but he was talking about one of his uh, his earlier campaigns when he was, I think, entertaining the notion of becoming a United States senator. And he was talking about bridging the gap between white America and black America and the liberal and the conservative and kind of like um, basically viewing him this himself as this man who inhabited two different worlds. And he actually uses the phrase, I, I felt like it was time for America to establish a new covenant 
with itself and um, and to be able to inaugurate this new covenant. And I'm like, wow, that's that's messianic language that he's leaning into there, you know, and it's and there's there's something about that religious charging of language that appeals to um, our, our desire to devote ourselves to whatever that cause is and to see it as something as transcendent and worthy. And I'm not saying that politics is a is a bad thing. I think it's a very important thing. I'm politically engaged. I'm very involved in my community. I'm trying to be able to make our our corner of the world a more just society. I just think that while politics can be a good thing, they can never be an ultimate thing. They're never going to be the thing that saves you. They're never going to be the thing that is able to actually give you transcendent meaning to your life. But they oftentimes ask that of us. They oftentimes invite us to that level of um, fanaticism and devotion. And so I do think that nationalism a lot of times can appeal to conservatism a little bit more. And I do think that the reason the left, and at least in the United States of America, is not typically as what we would consider nationalistic is because the left does not have a unified view, vision of what the nation should be. It's a lot more splintered. It's a lot more – it doesn't have the ability to cohere as much as the American right can cohere together right now. But there have been leftist movements in history – um, that are absolutely nationalistic. You, you can have a, a leftist iteration of nationalism. Um, Stalin under Russia was that. Um, I, I believe that uh, the Chinese Communist Party is, is that right now. It, it becomes something that uh, basically once it requires that that religious level of devotion, whether it's right or whether it's left, the political ideology is is the ideology, but nationalism is that religious shell that gives it – it's veneer that gives it a, a sense of divine sanction and authority that uh, evokes that level of passion that is so deeply embedded within us. Let's let's wrap up. Let's uh, let's let's put a bow on this because it's going to be re- this is all simple stuff, right? I, I want to circle back to the to the patriotism nationalism tension. And one thing that I was thinking of is the kind of patriotism you were describing. Maybe we could call it Christian patriotism. Let's say something like that. When I'm looking at it, what I see is that it's it, it would true Christian patriotism would dismantle the nation state as we know it. And so isn't the type of patriotism you were describing, isn't it by default kind of it's against nationalism in a sense to, tr- to truly love our neighbors as ourselves, to truly pour our lives out for the people around us in a way that is Christ honoring, Christ following actually it, it all the all the nationalism stuff just evaporates eventually. Now they might never let go of their power, but it's, I'm just saying to live our lives in that way is actually pretty subversive. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think probably the language that I would adopt, at least when I'm preaching or teaching on it, probably would not be Christian patriotism anymore. Just because I again, I think you're correct. <laughs> you can't say it. You're, I think you're correct in saying that that word is becoming more loaded. So any, in other words, outside of uh, yeah. Scholarship on nationalism, that distinction might not be as helpful. However, yeah, everyone's going to everyone's going to listen to this and go like, yep, Chris is into Christian patriotism now. And they're going to. <laughs> Absolutely. And then you get canceled and written off as the, I get you know, canceled. The, I'm done. You're okay, done. Go ahead. And so how, how I would say is maybe the way I would frame it is how can we steward our citizenship in a distinctly Christian way? And what does that look like? And so for, for some of us, like I, I do think that means that like we embrace the reality that we live in structures and systems that already exist and that the, ans- the answer is not to just, you know, like the end of Fight Club, just blow the whole thing up and immediately go into a, a system of anarchy. Um, I think that we have to contend for justice 
with the opportunities and the abilities that are available to us right now. And so I do believe that um, Christians that have the ability and the gifting to be able to be public servants and to get into politics in some type of way, like they, they have a special burden to be able to do that in such a way that actually bends the structures of society more towards justice and, and away from oppression. And and I think that we should be well informed to be able to do that in, in the way that we vote, in the way that we engage as well. One thing that I think is a, a really important first step is is to admit that right now the, the national and the federal level are, are so nebulous to be able to understand and to be able to even have any hope in right now that probably the better way that we can um, start is to say, how can we contribute to a more just and fair and uh, flourishing society for all people in our own local communities. In other words, so like, let's take that, um, you know, that passage from Jeremiah and actually really make it specific to us. Let's seek the peace of the city to which God has sent us. That if we have a high view of providence, um, we can believe that he has sent us to this moment, this time, this place, and this locality. And so for me, that looks like a lot of these big, high-minded issues of national debate, I might not practically be able to make as big of a difference as I would like to be able to make. Um, but I can try to be aware of and examine and meet the, the people that have that role to play in Amarillo, Texas, to be able to not only as an individual um, seek justice, but as, as a pastor of a congregation, seek to mobilize our people to where we're deeply invested in this community, um, that we're a part of nonprofits that are helping, that we're a part of, a part of civic government, um, that we're a part of trying to be able to make this city a more just society. I think that really is a, a is a huge step, and that's not to abdicate the importance of federal elections or state elections. That's just to be able to say, like, this is where we can actually have an opportunity to pioneer some things that I think a lot of us are just leaving on the table, and that we're letting people that that are highly interested in that, maybe not for the right reasons, um, basically uh, take up all the room because um, by our absence, we're we're giving them that that permission. And in some ways are complicit in the things that they're doing. And so I would say let, let's uh, like really focus a lot on um, what is near to us, what it means to be able to love our neighbor. But, but I do think it's really important in, in this age of, of consistent outrage and um, simplistic talking points to be able to realize that Christians, and I think even clergy in particular, have a unique liberty that we're not bound to the talking points of the right or to the left, um, that we have the ability to actually um, – you know, right, and to be able to speak up, and and to be able to, to, to think clearly and apply the gospel um, to the situations of the world that are around us, with nuance. And I think that you need to be careful with that. I, I don't think it's it's helpful to contribute to the culture of outrage, but I think it's really important for pastors to be able to speak with wisdom, and and add clarity and um, comfort in times whenever there there are tragedies. And so there are times where I don't speak up on every issue. I don't think it's my job. I'm not the White House. I don't have to do a press release for every single thing that happens in the nation. But there are times when something happens, and I feel like the Lord is stirring me deep in my bones to say something, because something needs to be able to be said. And I hope that that contribute to the good. And so I, I think that um, basically two things. One, number one, is let, let's love our city, uh, wherever the Lord has sent you. And number two, um, when you feel like the Lord is leading you to say something that is clear and beautiful and true and wise, speak up and say it, say it clearly, and, and hopefully it'll help some good in the world come forth. Mm. Well, thanks for sharing that. 
Now, one thing that I was thinking of was you were talking about focusing on local, you know, what can we do in our region? Don't I, I think of things in the future. Like, let's say Amarillo gets it right. And they figure out the way. I'm not saying they're creating a utopia, but they figure something out. And then what happens is they go, look at us. We're Amarillo. We do things right. We do things the Amarillo way. And so what it does is it creates a new nationalism. Mm -hmm. And so I think the point is, and maybe this is, this is where I've coined my horrible, the horrible phrase that will never work, Christian, Christian patriotism. Uh, it, it was dead on arrival as far as new <laughs> phrases go. But Christian patriotism says, oh, yeah, we're just giving this away. Like, we're not, we're not claiming that, like, this is, this is our gift to the world. We, by doing this, we're simply loving our neighbor as ourselves. We, we have no claim over this. This is not some kind of identity. And so I think maybe a, a, a Christ-like approach to politics is to serve the needs and to give it away. Is that, I mean, what, what do you perceive in that? Absolutely. Like, and, and something I say a little bit later on in the more practical portions of the book is, is that we need to be able to have godly submission to the, the authorities under which that we are right now, but it needs to be with a sense of earth, like appropriate suspicion. It, it's not that, you know, the city of man is as evil as it can possibly be. No, that there, there is good and that there are glimpses even of, of new creation in God's kingdom that we can see whenever government works well, whenever it creates justice well, whenever it creates flourishing in, in, a, in a way that is good and godly. But I, I do think that we need to have a, a posture of suspicion towards the state and towards um, what the kingdom of man can turn into, because this is one of the most tempting forms of idolatry that exists. I mean, the oldest archaeological finds that you have of, of religious culture are almost always associated with the state. It's almost always associated with the pharaoh or the king or who, whoever it is. It, this is something that for thousands and thousands of years, we have been tempted to worship. And, and we have to be self-aware of that. And that should bring us to a place of uh, suspicion towards um, the earthly city or the kingdom of man. And it should bring us to a place of, of humility, knowing that we are not above that, that idolatrous lure of power. David, where can we find you? Uh, you're not a talking head on uh, any of the news stations, uh, but what, where do you want people to find you at? Uh, our, our book, actually, hey, we have a co-publisher. I wrote my book on Christmas uh, through Whip and Stock. So. Fantastic. This book did arise out of a thesis, and, and how this comes to be is really because of, of this moment that was happening all throughout 2020. We're becoming more and more politically polarized. Every, the, everything that I'm researching is becoming more and more of a lived reality. Uh, I'm turning in my work chapter by chapter to my advisor. Uh, my advisor is uh, Paul S. Jun, who is uh, a doctor. He, he is a lecturer, a professor for uh, RTS in Washington, D.C. He's also a pastor of a Presbyterian church there. And I send him my final two chapters early one morning because um, we're still doing a whole bunch of Zoom appointments. And I have like a Zoom conference that I need to attend that day. And uh, I send him my two chapters. And the day is January 6, 2001. And uh, when he emails me back. I mean, 2021. 2021. That's right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah. So um, That's all right. I literally turn in the final chapters of my rough draft on January 6, 2001. 21. And, you know, he's living in Washington, D.C., and this is a very um, visceral moment for him. And he emails me back and he says, David, let's get you through the, the you know, we got some edits to make. We got to get you through the defense, but I want you to right now 
start thinking about turning this into a book proposal because what you have um, is something that is uniquely timely in this moment. And and as it turned out to be, um, uh, Wiffenstock got on it really quick and worked really um, hard on it. And it essentially released the same week as the one-year anniversary of the, the Capitol riot and insurrection. And so, yeah, that's uh, it, it's something that uh, has been a felt reality in my pastoral experience, but it is something that has become increasingly more timely as just discussions on nationalism is is very much at the forefront of everything that we're seeing and um, just experiencing as a nation right now. Where, where do you want people to find you at? So the, the you know the best place that you can at least on this topic is is buy the book. Um, it's available on Amazon. It's available on Wiffenstock um, uh, Publishers. Uh, Why do the nations rage? The demonic origin of nationalism. Um, to learn more about this, um, I'm also on Twitter. Um, I you can follow me at David A Ritchie. And uh, my last name is spelled R-I-T-C-H-I-E. And um, I, I do every now and then uh, write in op-eds, but it's, it's for my local paper. I mean, that's, that really is where I'm committed. I'm, I'm committed to... What was your last one on? It was actually on um, immigration. It was on okay. uh, uh, understanding that right now Amarillo is in a place we have um, some, some of the lowest um, unemployment in the entire nation. And uh, it was it was relation to Governor Abbott sending um, some of the, the people that were asylum seekers to the nation's capital and giving them a bus ride there. And I felt like that was a, a, a pretty performative act that was really unhelpful. And that was kind of like utilizing people that I believe are image bearers um, towards um, uh, just using them as political pawns. And so I was kind of reacting towards that and basically saying, um, just simply pointing out the, the multiple ways um, that asylum seekers and refugees have the ability to actually uniquely contribute to the local economy and to be able to actually solve some of the, un, the you know, the employment issues that um, our nation has faced. And, and part of that is motivated out of um, the fact that I'm deeply involved with a local nonprofit that our church helped start called the Refugee Language Project. And so Amarillo has a really high amount of uh, international refugees um, per capita in the state of Texas. I've seen firsthand refugees from many nations be a tremendous blessing to our city, a tremendous blessing to our local economy. And so I, I basically used an opportunity that was provided me to be able to, to argue for that and to, uh, to look at immigrants, to look at um, uh, refugees, to look at asylum seekers, um, not as pawns in a political contest, but as image bearers and neighbors. David Ritchie, thanks for your time. Thanks for joining us on, on the Tent Talks. <laughs> Absolutely. Chris, thank you so much for having me, brother. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Ten Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com. Music